I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson, and today I'm speaking with wildlife biologist Michael Chamberlain. All right, folks, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You might notice that this is not the voice of Mr. Mark Kenyon. Mark shot me a text last week and said he was off to a Segway Polo Championship where his team, the Swinging Rollers, were bound to bring home the hardware. I don't know. Then he used a bunch of fist bump emojis, which is how he ends all of his texts. So uh, I guess good luck to Mark with a sport I'm pretty sure he made up. Anyway... Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Chamberlain, who is most well-known for his wild turkey research. Seriously, this guy knows more about wild turkey behavior than just about anyone, but he's also studied a bunch of other animals, including whitetails. Topics throughout this episode range from current CWD research, fawn mortality from black bears and other predators, as well as research into mature buck behavior and how they are so good at avoiding you and I throughout the fall. This podcast goes all over the place, but it is just rooted in whitetail research and so interesting. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Not a problem. Glad glad to be here. You have uh, you've been on the Meat Eater podcast. You've been on a whole bunch, and you are you're, you're and I don't think this is crazy to say, but you're most well known for blowing people's minds as far as turkey research. Yeah, I'd say that's that's probably accurate. Yeah, I do a lot of work with turkeys and have been my my entire career. I I would say if anybody thinks they know a lot about turkeys, they should just find some of the the stuff that you've put out and listen to it because it's fascinating. And I I, I know this is a deer podcast, but I want to ask you one thing. This came up uh, earlier in the spring. I was I was out with one of my ten year old daughters, and we were scouting birds, and we were just sitting, kind of glassing, waiting to photograph a little bit, and we. Where I live, the Mississippi River is only about 10 miles away, and the Rum River and a couple other rivers are really close, so we have a lot of bald eagles. 
And those bald eagles will fly over those birds. Uh, you know, the, the turkeys out in the field, the turkeys go nuts and they start making a bunch of noise and run for mm-hmm. cover. And my daughter asked me, she's like, they must, you know, eagles must eat turkeys once in a while. And I'm like, I have no idea, honey, but I bet I know the guy who's going to tell me. They do. They, they do. do? And they, yeah. And they'll, I mean, they'll attack and harass turkeys quite a bit. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to quantify predation by eagles. Um, because most of the, a lot of the sites I work on, we don't, we don't have bald eagles. And if we do, it's, it, they're, they're not common. Right. So, um, but they do absolutely occasionally prey on birds and they certainly, they certainly harass birds. I've seen them harass birds several times. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, that's kind of, I gave her more of a weasel word answer cause I wasn't sure, but we did see an eagle up at the lake one time, grab a, grab a goose, which was traumatizing for some of the kids because <laughs> it was it was pretty rough but I, I told her i was like you know if they get the chance they're gonna take a swipe like yeah yeah <laughs> you know yeah the one the one eagle we know is pretty efficient at killing turkeys is golden eagles yeah they uh they'll they'll crush a bird and they're so big and they're so fast and they the way they hunt and you know the the height that they come down from you know turkeys don't I mean, they don't stand a chance really. Um, by the time the Eagle's there and the bird, you know, bird realizes, uh Oh, you know, they're going, you know, over a hundred miles an hour. So it's, uh, it's lights out for the bird. So they'll do a dive like a Falcon. They'll get way high and then come down just smoking Some, fast. Yeah. Sometimes that their flight speed is ridiculous. Um, so from a Turkey's perspective, you know, I mean, you know, this Turkey's, they use their vision to be able to avoid predation. That's their primary line of defense. And if you've got an animal that's above you, you know, that's different than if it's on the same playing field as you, you know, turkeys have that periscope head. And it, what I've noticed in areas where turkeys are dealing with a lot of aerial predation or just harassment, they, they constantly look up. You'll see them, you know, constantly glancing up. Whereas here, like in the Southeast where I live, in the, in the forested areas, you don't see that a lot. You don't see birds that are constantly glancing up in the air because they're not used to seeing danger from, from above. But mm-hmm. how, like I've, I've watched Merriam's a number of times out West that they almost constantly glance up in the sky, um, at times, which to me just says there's a concern, you know, for the bird, they, they know danger could be above and not just on the ground. You know, I wonder, I know we're way off topic here, but I, I, I wonder if there's a similar parallel between trout that live in, you know, maybe a, maybe a, a river that meanders through open ground uh, versus, you know, maybe a smaller stream in wooded territory if they're more spooky out in the, you know, more open where there's a better chance for aerial predation. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, turkeys are, you know, what we've seen is from a predation standpoint, they, you know, they, they, they have a suite of things that harass and attack. And, you know, so they, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons turkeys are so wary is they, there's so many things that want to eat them, uh, including us, that they, they're hyper vigilant. you know, they're constantly vigilant of the, of their surroundings. And, um, that's why, I mean, predation is structured the bird that we love to chase. And the reason they're so fun to hunt in many ways, it's because of the predators that they've interacted with for, you know, for eons. Yep. 
Yep. All right. Let's let's. I I could talk to you for about turkeys for a long time, but we should talk about deer. Can you can you just give the listeners a you know kind of a summary of what where you came from and what you're doing for research right now? Yeah. So I grew up in Virginia. I was a uh, I was a suburban kid. Got to hunt on the weekends with my dad. Um, went to college at Virginia Tech. Majored in wildlife science and. Then I ended up getting an opportunity to go to graduate school at Mississippi State. I did my master's research on on wild turkeys there, and um, volunteered with some with some other students and was able to get involved in deer research actually a little bit. And then I went to um, I stayed there and did my PhD degree, which also involved turkeys, but also uh, dealt with predators. I actually radio marked turkeys. Uh, at the same time as bobcats, coyotes, foxes, raccoons, and I tracked them all simultaneously to see how they were interacting with each other. And then when I graduated with my doctorate, I I was hired at LSU, Louisiana State University. And when I went there, I started studying literally everything. Uh, (laughs) um, I was fortunate to be supported by agencies that put me under, you know, on contracts to do research. So I, I literally, I studied I started studying deer. I continued to study turkeys. I did wolf research, coyote research, raccoon research. I mean, just a bunch of different things. And um, but as I've as I've gone through my career, I've been fortunate enough to be able to kind of specialize now. And the work I have now is is only basically turkey work, except for one large deer project that we we have in Arkansas right now um looking at at cwd and some of the the impacts of that disease on that on that population so so yeah is that ongoing right now Mm -hmm. yeah we're in our second field season uh what's the goal of that study we're actually we're looking at um differences in behavior of cwd positive versus presumed negative animals we're looking to see what influences the disease may have on fawn survival. We're looking at uh, how these animals are interacting with each other because we have positive animals that we're that are we're GPS monitoring, and we have animals that are negative when we catch them the first time, and then at some point they become positive. So we're tracking this to to see how these animals change their behavior so that we can inform the agency as to what the future looks like for, you know, how is this disease spread? We know it, we know in a general sense how it's spread, but what does that look like from a movement perspective? Uh, we're estimating deer density in the, in the area, trying to tell the agency how many deer are out there. Uh, and then ultimately what we're going to do is, is model what this population is going to look like five years, 20 years, 50 years down the road so that the agency can understand what the field's going to look like as this disease progresses because, you know, we all know, you know, in areas where it's prevalent and it's very prevalent in Northwest Arkansas, you know, these, these CWD zones tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger, not in all cases, but in many cases they do. And the, the agencies have to continue to expand the zones and the, and we want to be able to, to inform the agency what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah. So you're just building, I mean, and you're, you're taking something that wasn't probably possible that long ago. You're monitoring, 
you know, healthy deer and infected deer and watching how they interact, how many points of contact they have, the density, and just to see like, what does this tell us about the future of what this is going to turn into? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Does it scare you? Um, in some ways, yes. And I, you know, as a deer hunter, first and foremost, you know, I've seen what's happened to deer populations in in areas with with a high prevalence. One only need to go to where we're trapping to see the the area of the zone that we're trapping in that has the highest prevalence. Deer density is very very low. Um, and there's there's obvious reason for that. This is a you know a fatal disease every time. So as a deer hunter, that really it I say it it very much concerns me. You know, I, I hunt deer in a, in a number of states, but my, you know, the two states that I hunt the most in would be Georgia here where I live and Louisiana where, where I've been in a camp for, for many, many years. And you know, CWD has not been detected yet in Georgia, but it was recently detected in Louisiana. And that changes everything, uh, as you know, when that disease is encountered, uh, everything changes from that forward, you know, that point forward. Um, when you, when you talk about there being a lower density in those, the high CWD areas, let's, I want to talk about that a little bit because I think it's like very easy for, for the general hunting population to kind of be dismissive of CWD because you go, okay, well, it's not going to kill it till it's seven and a half years old or six and a half years old or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of the deer we're hunting are way younger than that. But there has to be, you know, not only like, like you said, it's 100% fatal, but are you seeing, you know, CWD infected deer when they hit a certain age, uh, you know, the fecundity of the, of the entire herd drops a little bit or like, I mean, are they producing as many fawns as healthy deer? Probably not. Right. That's what, that's one thing we're trying to learn. We're trying to figure out with this research, what that looks like. Um, and, and, you know, there's. Obviously, um, from a logical perspective, you would think yes that there there would be some impacts, but but that's one thing we're trying to quantify, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So you you assume that, but you you're waiting for the data to show you that it's true. Yeah. Never assume anything. <laughs> never assume. <laughs> I can anything. assume it. <laughs> um, I've learned my lesson with assumptions. Yeah. They, uh, they're fraught with <laughs> with uh, getting your butt in a sling. So you know, I wait until I have solid information in hand. For sure. Uh, how, how many years are you doing this study before you'll be able to sort of model out, you know, into the distant future? We have four field seasons planned. So we're in our second field season now. So we'll trap two more years. And then, you know, there's a there's a Ph.D. On, student on the project now. He'll finish up two years from now and a postdoctoral researcher will come on and, and kind of wrap the study up and we'll start disseminating information you know, probably actually next year because the student will have some information that we can start publishing. And, uh, I'm really interested in what we're, I mean, I've, I've kind of get bits of what we're seeing, you know, um, but it will be really interesting once we have the data crunched and we can explain it to people. Is it, is this the most, uh, I, I don't know if comprehensive is the right word. Is this the most advanced study on CWD in that, in that capacity that's going on right now? In the South. Yes. In the South. Yeah. Yeah. Is somebody up North doing it? There's been, you know, there's been ongoing CWD research in other areas for years. Um, it's just not, you know, in the Southern U S there just hasn't been 
you know, until very recently, if you just look, the number of states that have reported detections in the South within the past few years is, is pretty dramatic. So, so I think there are some agencies that are looking at this study with a keen eye because we, we will not only provide Arkansas Game and Fish with information that's relevant, obviously, to them, but other states will be able to benefit from the same information, particularly states that are have recently detected CWD, and they're trying to understand what it, what is it this going to look like? What's it going to look like five years from now, 10 years from now? And, you know, a couple of the states that have, have recently documented detections are also seeing pretty high prevalence rates, you know, like you see in Northwest Arkansas. So, I think there are a number of states that are looking at this, this study and, and hoping that it's going to provide relevant information to them. And that's, that's ultimately our goal is to not just benefit the agency that's funding the work, but also other agencies that are dealing with the same problem. Yeah. Well, this, this, this work that's going on there in Arkansas, is this going to be a way to kind of, uh, it, there, there's a argument made often amongst hunters. That it's like CWD's always been here. It's always been out on the landscape, and we're only just finding it now because we're testing for it. Will this kind of be the nail in the coffin to that argument? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, because like you and I talked about before we got on air, uh, you'll never put a nail in any coffin um, in our society. I don't think at this point because there are naysayers regardless of what topic you come up with. Even when science provides answers, there's always the argument that, well, what if? What if this? What if that? And science is not absolute. And we change. Things change. I mean, from a scientific perspective, you know, I've published work myself that discounted work I did previously. That's, I mean, that's just part of being a scientist and so I don't I don't ever look at what I do is and think that's that's it that's we're shutting the door on that because that's just not reality dealing with people and in dealing with natural systems where there's a lot of there's a lot of chaos you know we work in outside and there's a lot of things going on and in, in the you know in the environment that creates noise in our data so we're constantly learning new things or determining that we didn't know what we thought we knew. And that creates skepticism, as you know, with, with people in the public, despite the fact that, you know, from the start, we're simply trying to provide information under the recognition that sometimes that information contradicts other pieces of information. That's the way science works. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, the problem with the system is science is, you know, science in and of itself is to prove things wrong and it's going to prove previous science wrong. And that gives, that gives people sort of an out for taking it seriously. Cause they can look at it and go, well, you, you did this wrong before. And it's like, we're just leveling up information a little bit at a time and learning more and more stuff. And it's, you know, it is really inexact, uh, but it's, it's so interesting to see, you know, when I, I'm I'm pretty fortunate to get to talk to people like you quite often who who work in, you know, deer science and deer research and wildlife biology. And when CWD comes up, there's always a different feel to the conversation mm -hmm. with somebody who's studying it versus somebody, you know, mm -hmm. who who is whatever they are in their life and just likes to deer hunt. 
Mm-hmm. Like there's a big gap there. And I don't know, you know, I, I just look at this issue and I, I'm like, man, we better learn as much as we can about it. Yeah. Because yeah, that's it's, important. It's a, con- it's a polarizing contentious topic. And I think part of that goes back to the way that agencies typically react to, to CWD. You know, there've been some agencies that liberalize deer harvest. There've been, um, you know, the way that this disease is handled creates in many ways contention, you know, and, and I get it. I understand as a deer hunter, I understand like we were talking about when I, when I got a text saying, you know, CWD has been detected in this parish in Louisiana. I thought, Oh damn. You know I mean? My heart sank. I was like, well, that's it. You know, that everything changes today. Um, and I think a lot of hunters feel like, like that. And they, they're like, Oh, you know, this, the sky's falling in it. And I get that because it's hard not to think like that given how serious this disease is. Um, if you don't believe that, you, you just have to understand that deer don't survive this disease. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, Alzheimer's and, you know, in humans, I mean, I watched my father deal with Alzheimer's for years and it, it's just unbelievable. Yep. So you have this disease that's out there that they do not survive period. Uh, anyone that can look at that and not think that's problematic to me, that's, that's a, that's an odd point of view, frankly. Well, I mean, it, I think part of the, part of that issue is, you know, a lot of the current hunters have only known really pretty good times with whitetails. Sure. You, you know, yeah. I mean, like we've been just really, really lucky, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 41 and, you know, I can remember starting hunting when I was 12 in Minnesota and there weren't as many deer then, but we could still go out and see deer and just, you know, we, it wasn't very long before we had a lot of deer and we could shoot, you know, four does in a season. And it was, you mm-hmm. know, kind of unprecedented times. And that's happened in a lot of places, you know, I mean, big wood stuff and, you know, far North, different story. Uh, but so many, so many people out there who are into this don't really know any different than those deer are always going to be there and we're always going to have them to hunt. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm 50 and I remember talking to my dad when he was in his sixties and we both, we both grew up in Virginia and I can remember him telling me that it was front page news when he was a kid to see a deer track. And, you know, I, I was born in 1971 and I remember as a, as a child, how special it was to see a deer if you went to hunt. I mean, I can remember sitting for days and not seeing an animal and much less killing one. I also remember many, many seasons where if I killed one deer, I was, that was it. I was tickled. Yep. And now, you know, on most weekends, I average one. I mean, it's between shooting does and and killing bucks. It's, I mean, shooting a deer is, it's just commonplace now. So I've, I've seen it from both perspectives and the thought of going back to what I grew up doing, which was not seeing deer. I don't know how I continued to be a deer hunter, frankly, Yep. because it was hard to, to get through a season. And, and I, I can remember several years killing a deer on the last day of a long deer season 
and just being relieved, almost relieved, you know, that I, I did it, you know, I did it. I finally got one and I hunted a lot. It's not like I went three or four times, I, you know, days and days and days. And I think back to if I were trying to take a kid and recruit that person into the hunting ranks and make them as passionate as I am about deer hunting and they didn't see deer, that's a tough sell. Yep. That's a, that's a tough sell. So, so yeah, I, I see, I see it through both lenses. Yeah. I mean that, that not the, just the promise or the optimism that you'll see deer is worth so much to a hunter and oh, yeah. going yeah. out, you know, I, I go hunt, uh, the big woods in Wisconsin, quite a bit, Northern Wisconsin, the deer population is low and the predator population is high. And it's, you know, the same story in a lot of places. And, you know, it's, I might go a week without seeing a deer or two weeks without seeing a deer, or sometimes I'll go over there and I've got a doe tag and I'm like, I'm going to, oh, you know, a doe and a buck tag. I'll be like the next one that comes down the trail, I'm going to shoot. And it might take me weeks yeah. to yeah. make that happen. And I, and I look at that and I go, man, if, you know, uh, there's an awful lot of people who don't have the time and the, you know, the abilities that I do to get out there like that, that would go, no way, this is so not worth it. And because it's just, it is not that much fun when you go out there and you're like, I'm probably not going to see anything today. I'm certainly <laughs> probably not going to have anything come within range. It's a tough thing. Yeah. Oh, it sure is. You know, at this point in my hunting career, you know, the harvest is, is one thing. It, it's much less important than it used to be when I was young. A, a perfect hunt for me, honestly, and this is, this is no, <laughs> this is no joke. I've said this before getting in a stand and just being snowed in with deer all afternoon, you know, looking over a green field or something and just having deer act like deer um, and being able to get out of the stand in the dark, not have to clean a deer, go and have a beer and turn the grill on. That's a perfect afternoon of hunting, seeing lots of animals and just being able to sit there and relax and watch them be themselves. That's, that's awesome for me. And I just remember back when I was a kid, I never had that yep. possibility. And, and like I said, it's a wonder that I continued to, to, to deer hunt because it was tough, you know, and when my, when my kids were growing up, you know, they were fortunate to have access to, to really good properties where seeing deer was just, I mean, you, they were going to see deer every single hunt. I mean, period. Yep. And so sometimes they'd see a lot of deer and they, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to, to get a kid hooked on the, you know, the experience and, and let their passion flourish if they know they're going to be successful. Um, and talking about CWD, you know, for instance, some of these, some of these folks that are hunting in, in our study area in Northwest Arkansas, they, they, they're ready to quit. They, they aren't seeing deer. And then when they do see deer and they harvest bucks, they're all positive. They all, they all test positive. And, you know, that's really frustrating. One, you, you're, you're trying to see animals. You finally see animals, you kill an animal and then you can't consume it. Um, you know, there have been a number of hunters that express, have expressed to us that they're just ready to put their hands up. Uh, and I understand that very frustrating.
pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull staying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Do you think, I mean, I know this is, I know you don't want to make assumptions, but I'm going to ask you to anyway. Is there, is there a way out of the CWD thing? Is there, is there any way you see that this works out where we figure something out that we can kind of end this thing or, or lock it up a little bit? Um, you're probably asking the wrong person. I'm an eternal pessimist. Um, and I, I don't, I don't say that lightly. Um, I, I tend to be very, very skeptical of, of everything in life these days. And this is just a, an impossible situation. It really is. Um, in areas where the prevalence has gotten as high as it is in, in some areas, I, it is a tough, tough situation. I don't think there's going to be a light bulb that turns on. No. I think this is something that we're going to have to deal with. I'll be long gone, and we'll still be dealing with it. Agencies will be dealing with it. Hunters will be dealing with it. I hope that it is less impactful than I think it's going to be, but the pessimist in me um, is concerned about what 
my passion is going to look like 10 years from now, 20 years. Yikes. I, but I get it, man. Uh, let's, let's switch topics here to something less, less heavy and morbid. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little more hopeful. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's do something that's, that's more lighthearted. Your research, your dear research seems to almost all take place or probably has all taken place uh, in the South, Southeast Mm -hmm. primarily. Mm -hmm. Is that just because that's where you live and you grew up and you're like, well, that's where I want to be. Or did you recognize a a hole in the research game somewhere and go, you know, those Northern deer have been studied enough. Let's figure out these Southern deer. No, it's just opportunity. I've just had the opportunities where I've been housed. Uh, The work in Arkansas, you know, that's the that's the only deer study that I've done that I've been involved with that was outside of, of my home state. I mean, I did the work that I sent you that we did in Louisiana. I was technically here in Georgia, but you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Louisiana. I'm very familiar with, with that state and the deer herds that are there. So no, it's just been a thing of opportunity. Yeah. Just, just, it is what it is. Uh, let's, can we talk about the fawns and the bears in Louisiana? Yeah, sure. Because, you know, I, I hunt two places or two states with, you know, Minnesota where I hunt has a decent bear population in some of the spots, but Wisconsin where I hunt has a real high bear population. And I know I'm probably going to totally misquote this, but the the DNR there did a, a fawn mortality study in one of the counties that I hunt quite a bit. This was probably eight or 10 years ago now, but I remember looking at it and the the mortality rate for fawns was 90% up to 11 months old. So mm-hmm. all the fawns that hit the the landscape, you know, nine out of every 10 of them died before they made it past 11 months. So basically a year. And the number one predator was black bears. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this is an area with wolves, bobcats, coyotes, you know, we run trail cameras over there. And it's like a one-to-one ratio of deer to predators. I mean, mm-hmm. that you get, you know, and I know that's totally anecdotal, but it's just, I just say that because it's a, it's a predator dense region. Sure. Uh, and be, when you tell people that about the bears, they go, no way. Like not when you have wolves and coyotes and stuff. And I, I think people underestimate how good bears are at, at, at snatching up fawns. Yeah. And that, that work we did in Louisiana, that was a, that was a bottomland hard, hardwood forest uh, for people that are listening that are not familiar with what that means, it's wet, uh, wet soils, hardwood, all hardwoods, mature forest interspersed with agricultural fields and regenerating forest areas. Um, and it has super productive deer herds in, in that part of the world. The deer herds are very, very productive. Uh, they produce a lot of fawns. But in that particular study, um, bears are very, very common in that part of Louisiana. Um, we actually had three predators that ate fawns in that study. We lost fawns to bears. Of course, we lost fawns to coyotes and we lost fawns to bobcats. And by far bears were the most common predator of a fawn. They took about half of the fawns that, that died were killed by bears. Um, and we, what we ended up seeing is that most of that predation was very, very early after the fawn hit the ground. You know, at that point, mom's off somewhere. The fawn is, is hanging out, making decisions on its own. And that's something a lot of people don't think through is, 
you know, she's not standing there saying, don't move, don't move. You know, those fawns, they get up and they move around on their own. They may not move far. And we saw that's when the bears got them was, you know, that first handful of days after they were born. And a lot of the predation occurred in areas where it looked to us like bears were, were actually foraging on other stuff, uh, soft mass that was available fruits, you know, berries. And that was really good fawning cover. And those does were, you know, does were putting fawns in those areas. And then bears were just meandering through there. And, you know, bears have an exceptional sense of smell. And it's not difficult for a bear to catch a fawn. I mean, they're, they're walking along. They, you know, people think, well, they're this big lumbering kind of, you know, thing. No, when they decide they're going to attack something, they, they go and, they were they were a primary predator of fawns in that study, and um, we actually have seen that in other work. There's some ongoing work here in Georgia, also showing that bears are are taking fawns as well. So they're I mean they're an efficient fawn predator. So I'd always assumed that you know with a bear's nose, and I I had always just assumed they were they were focusing in on fawning grounds and they were coursing back and forth till they ran across fawns. But you're saying that a lot of the fawn predation from bears is just sort of, you know, right place at the right time for the bear and just an incidental encounter. No, I think there's probably truth to both both lines that, you know, fawns are that's a rich prey source. I mean, if you it's a huge protein pack. And, you know, bears in the summer, they're breeding, you know, and females that have cubs with them are lactating and they're, I mean, they, they need energy. So I think in our case, it was a combination of a lot of the good fawning cover happened to be in areas that bears were also foraging in. And that just happened to put fawns in places where they were very likely to be you know, interacting with a, with a bear. And of course they're going to lose. Um, our fawn survival rate in that study was about 27%. So, you know, more than almost, you know, 70 plus percent mortality, which is pretty consistent, frankly, with what we're seeing in a lot of studies in the South. It, you know, it's, it's tough being a fawn for sure in these predator rich communities, like what you described, or, you know, up North, you know, you have a, not only do you have a lot of different types of things that eat fawns, but you have a high density of those animals as well. And that's what we saw in Louisiana in that study you referenced. We, not only did we have three primary predators, but the density of those predators was high. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, up where where I was talking, you also have about once every five years you have a winner that's really really working hard to set them set the overall herd back too, and I have to imagine that has a pretty big effect on it as well as far as you know maybe having singles versus twins and you know overall fawn production as well. Sure, yeah, and in in our part of the world, at least in Louisiana, it's a, obviously it's not a winter issue as far as snow and cold water is is the biggie. Um, our super wet springs where we have a lot of flooding and that's been very common the past decade. Um, much more common than it has been historically And those deer herds flooding during the spring and summer can, can really negatively impact fawn production, um, through a variety of mechanisms ranging from just 
condition of the does to, you know, those fawns being dropped in areas where either there's very little fawning cover and everything's concentrated, so predation rates increase. So it's it's not it's not really winter in the in that part of the world. It's actually spring and summer that can be really problematic for fawns. I, I was I was wondering about that when you were talking about the the water. Is there you know I had a I had a lesson in that when I hunted I hunted whitetails in Florida one time and it you know it was it was first week of August and it was pouring rain. You know, that, that monsoon mm-hmm. rolls in every day at three o'clock and you get, you know, it feels like four inches of rain in an hour and it's done and gets super hot. But what it was, what made it so miserable was the high ground where we were hunting. Everything was there, all the yep. bugs, all the snakes, yep. you know, and is it, is there a component of that with the, that you see in the Louisiana fawns too? Cause I have to imagine it probably concentrates ticks and stuff as well or not. Oh, it concentrates everything. Yeah. I mean, and it there, it's just a such a cumulative effect of, of floodwaters like that. One, you know, mosquitoes are absolutely insane um, during those flood years like that. You've concentrated everything on small patches of ground. You have stressed everything that's there is stressed. So from a deer's perspective, their stress hormones are off the charts. Um, you know, at, at fawning time, you know, does are designed to go be alone and drop those fawns and they space themselves in a way where they're not hanging around with other does. And when floodwaters concentrate animals, they can't do that. So their entire ecology breaks down during these flood events. And what we've seen, what I've seen anecdotally on my own, on my own camp property uh, is, you know, we, well, I can tell you right out of the box, if we have a prolonged flood event in the spring and summer and, and fawning there is in August, late July and August, if we have flooding into early and mid summer, our fawns take a absolute hammer. Um, it, it gets really, really bad. And, you know, what you mentioned, you know, your winter events up North, what that does other than just kill a bunch of fawns that year is that age cohort progresses through time. So in other words, okay, well this year we lose, let's just say our fawn survival was 10%. Well, next year we're going to have a dramatically lower percentage of year and a half old does and bucks than we're normally supposed to have. And now when they get to be two and a half and those does start becoming more productive, there's fewer of them. And then that age cohort goes through time and by the time they reach four or five or six years old, you know, at the point where it, at least from a quote unquote trophy deer management perspective, you know, you start harvesting some of these animals, there aren't any, there's very few in the population. And so these effects are not just a one year effect. They're, you know, these, they, they become accumulative through time and um, and that's really tough from a management scenario, you know, a management perspective. It creates some challenges because you're trying to think out what's this herd going to look like years down the road. That, you know, up, up here where I live, the, the age class situation comes up most often with fish management, right? Like walleyes, uh, you know, big topic here and, you know, the perch to some extent, some of the other game fish, but you, you hear that a lot where, you know, yeah, a, a poor spring or a poor spawn sucks, 
But where you really start to get hit is when those fish should be like prime spawning age uh-huh. and there's a big gap in the year classes there and you see it stretch out. It, it's it's such a good reminder of how difficult game management really is. When you, when you talk about just the whims of mother nature and the weather that you're going to get and, you know, you get three of those real wet years in a row, like the challenge to manage that, you know, three years beyond that or five years beyond that is really tough. And a lot of people have short memories. So they think, why don't I have these deer now? Or why don't I have these walleyes now when you're, when you're wrestling with what happened, you know, half a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really frustrating for, for landowners, you know, and managers as well, because you do everything right. And then mother nature bites you and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. And you know, again, I'm I'm speaking specifically about my experiences in Louisiana, but it's um, it can happen anywhere. You know, like here in my backyard this winter, for instance, we had a very poor mass crop, and what that did was obvious to our deer herd. I harvested a a buck about uh, it was the second weekend of November. No, first weekend of November. And he was way, way underweight compared to what he should have been. And he was a six-year-old. And, I, of course, I was tickled to kill him. But when I stood there and looked at him on the ground, I thought to myself, this guy would have been in trouble come late winter. Um, because, and and we, our body weights were down. Uniformly, they were down. And, and that matters. You know? So it, it may not be a catastrophic event like a flood, but even these subtle environmental changes, they they change your management because they alter the herd in ways that may not be very dramatic. They're more subtle, you know, but a deer going in the winter 15 pounds lighter than he should be, that's a problem. Yeah. Well, that's I maybe this is a weird jump here, but that that's what always amazes me when you get to observe uh, you know, deer on a food plot somewhere, you know, my, my experience is more up here. I've hunted down South a little bit, but I've hunted up North a lot. And you see, sometimes if you have like a little kill plot, you'll see one great big doe sort of claim it. And she's fighting everybody that comes in. I mean, she's, she's swinging hooves at everybody. And it's so it's, it's a behavior that you like, you're not, you don't witness very often. Right. And you Mm -hmm. look at it and you go, it's the same thing with turkeys, especially fall turkeys. Like you see how territorial they get over a food source you're like, yeah, that's because they need every freaking calorie they can get because if they don't get it, you know, and they go into the winter in the wrong condition, it's over for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, they're wired to reproduce and survive. That's what these animals are wired to do. And, um, surviving is, is calories and predation, you know, so you have to forage and you have to be successful. And when times get lean, you have to take matters into your own hands, like what you just you know, with turkeys, it's really obvious because you can just see them fight each other constantly when they encounter prey in the in the fall and winter. And, and deer do the same thing, obviously. What I've noticed is on larger, you know, on smaller plots, which I, I try not to even plant, but on larger plots, you'll often see these matriarchal groups kind of separate themselves. You'll have a, you know, a doe and and her last year's fawn and this year's fawn, they'll come in over here and another group will come in over on the other side and they'll kind of, they'll kind of keep their distance from each other in a way that, um, 
they avoid strife, you know, they, and that's, that's one reason I, I actually try to encourage people that I work with that, you know, if you have the capability of planning larger plots, do it. Um, one, you'll attract more animals, but two, you, you end up, I've experienced, you end up with a lot calmer animals. Um, if you can kind of separate everybody and let, let them do their thing. And it's a lot of fun if you can sit there and watch, you know, four or five different groups of does that are, that are foraging rather than one that comes in a tiny little plot. And when her buddy shows up, she runs off and that type of thing. You know, that's, it's not as enjoyable. I've never, ever thought about that from the perspective of how you could, how you could calm your deer down a little bit by giving them some more space to self-segregate and, you know, not, not be as on edge and competitive all the time. Yeah, you can see this. I mean, you you see this in, in a this another contentious topic, but you know, hunting over bait, for instance. Well, trapping over bait's the same thing. I mean, we trap over we trap turkeys and deer with bait, and there is no question that if you have a food source there and times are lean, when one animal decides he or she is going to come in there, if they're socially dominant over another animal, they're going to displace that animal. That's just the way it is. So when you've got a prey source that's that's localized and it's just right here, that's that's what I'm using, then you should expect to see that displacement. Whereas if that prey source is stretched across five acres, for instance, that you don't see that social strife. Uh, that's what I've noticed in my in my own hunting experience. Well, you see that with bears. You know, when you, when you're baiting black bears, you see that. I mean, it, I think the the best example though is that fall turkey. If you figure out where you know, a group of hens and poults are going to feed every day and you go in there and put one single feeding hen decoy in there and you start squawking away, you see hen behavior that's wild mm-hmm. and they they get so, and, and the, the groups of toms do in the fall as well, but you see it's, it's almost, it's more striking when you see hens come in like strutting and chest bumping and, you know, I've, I've arrowed birds in the fall that go tip over and then the other ones go stand on her and stomp her just like the toms do in the spring. And it's, oh sure it's just pure dominance, man. Yeah, it's pretty. That's pretty cool behavior. Yeah, it is. Let's talk. Uh, I know everybody wants to hear about this. Uh, let's talk that Louisiana study on mature buck movement. Yeah. So what we did there is that was actually the same study site that, that we did the fawn work that where we saw the bear predation. But that other aspect of the study is we captured bucks and we put GPS collars on them, and we collected locations so that we could obviously describe you know how they were moving and on that study site we we had the luxury or the the fortune i guess of having an area that was that was very very lightly hunted this was public land uh, a section that was essentially a sanctuary basically um and then the rest of the area was was open access so we were we were able to see how pressure influenced buck behaviors which was cool. And just anecdotally, we were able to observe some really cool behaviors. For instance, you know, bucks that took excursions and were gone for four or five months and then came back bucks that maintained two different home ranges each year. You know, they had a fall winter home range and then they, they had a spring summer home range and literally they were miles apart from each other. So we, yeah, we, we had some cool data that we got out of that study and, you know, as hunters that really, you know, the fawn predation stuff, that's obviously important, but the, the, the date on bucks, you know, just people eat it up. 
you know, and I get it. I, I did too. I look at it and I'm like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's really cool. Um, we also saw a lot of individual variation in behavior across bucks, uh, irrespective of age. And that's something that we're seeing in turkeys as an aside. And a lot of studies are seeing it with, with other species that there's no such thing as an average deer. They all, they all have behaviors that are, that are kind of individual, which, you know, kind of, kind of makes sense. Yeah. It, it makes sense. It's intuitively makes perfect sense. It's just harder for us to sort of wrap our brain around because we'd like to just generalize. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, of course. Hey, that, you know, there's only two kinds of bucks. The way to kill this one is to do this. And the way to kill the other one is to do that. And in reality, that's not the way they function. So with, with the, the deer that had two home ranges, those, those bucks where you're saying, okay, they got fall, winter, and they got spring, summer. Not, not all the bucks have that, right? No, that was just a handful. What, what, what do you think that is? Why do you think some bucks are like, I'm going to light out, you know, eight miles away and I'm going to spend my spring and my summer there. And then I'm going to come back in the fall to this spot. But some of them are like, no way. I honestly have no idea. We, we speculated that, you know, maybe there was, there was some genetic, you know, this animal was from animals that had made similar behaviors before, but who knows? And what was really crazy with those, the two in particular, I can remember where they went when they left to go to a different home range, didn't look anything different than where they left from. Like I just, um, it just didn't really make any sense. It, it was almost as if they pulled the, you know, the, the vacation card, if you will, like, I'm just going to go over here and hang out. And they did it multiple years. It's not, they didn't just do this once. Uh, in fact, one of these bucks, he did that every year. He went to the exact same spot when he left his one home range. He went, I mean, took him about a day and a half and he went over to the other range. So he knew exactly where he was going and he walked straight over there to that spot and then hung out there all spring and summer. Um, no idea why that is there from a, a, you know, an ecological perspective, there, there's some mechanisms that may be going on there. You know, animals that we think maybe they're prospecting for other areas. Maybe the fact that bucks did that outside of the rut kind of destroys that theory because what are they prospecting if they're not? if they're not taking these excursions during the rut, which most of them were not during the rut, then seeing does, well, that, that argument shot, you know, well, is he going somewhere that has some abundant resource, you know, that he can't get where he was? Well, in our case, the answer was no. He left a bottomland forest that had agriculture and he walked over to another bottomland forest that had agriculture and, you know, we were kind of dumbfounded to be honest with you. Um, and you know, stuff like that, honestly, Tony, we'll never, we'll never know. We'll never understand some of that. And that's good. That's, I think is kind of cool is like, you know, I don't honestly know what the answer to that is and maybe I never will. And that's okay. I, I think that stuff's fascinating when you, so when you say that and you go, okay, the, the dough availability of does same in both spots, the abundance of food, same in both spots. 
So you just think, all right, is, is that a genetic carryover where at one point it was beneficial for some deer or some of the deer's ancestors to move, you know, to where they were born or some, some other spot for half of the year. And some of them still carry that and it's still expressed in their genes and some of them don't. And then you're like, okay, well, if that's the case, what is it? Like, where yeah. did that come from? Yeah. Maybe he was born there. You know, maybe these bucks were born years ago and they did, you know, and, and one of these older, one of these bucks was, was an older guy. Um, for all we know, maybe he was fawned over eight miles away. And when he dispersed as a year and a half old buck, he dispersed to where we ended up catching him. And for whatever reason, he was just predisposed to go home each, each summer and, and go back to an area that he was his natal area. The problem is we obviously we would have to catch them as fawns and then track them for a number of years to be able to, to determine that. And, and we couldn't in that study, but that's a plausible hypothesis is that he was, he was born there. Yeah. Pay attention here. Cause this is a hell of a good service. It's called the wellness company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull saying, if I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. How often in your research and your career do you just 
just have those moments where you go, there, there's so much left for us to learn. Every day, every single day. Uh, and that in some ways is, is maddening. <laughs> uh, and in some ways it, it's, uh, it makes me smile because there will be work to do long after I'm gone. Um, I would say probably most days I think more about, okay, I just, we just learned this. Um, well, now that we know that we now don't know this, this, and this, or I can't explain what we just observed. What's it going to take to get an answer to that? Well, I'm going to need to do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this is going to take two years. And just every day, it's like, we just know so little. And, and as we learn things, we create more questions than answers in a lot of cases. And that's what I see with, with, with a lot of my turkey work right now is we just, everything we learn it's good. And, and you're like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. I'm, you know, and then you sit back and think, why is that? And that doesn't make any sense. So let me think through that. And then I think through it for a week or, and I come to the conclusion that, uh, I don't have an explanation for that. And to get one, it's going to take more information. Okay. Well, I can get more information, but that takes time. <laughs> So you're in this catch 22 where you're constantly learning things and questioning things and you realize the solution to, to some of these questions is just time and data. And we are an instant gratification society. You know, we want answers now. We want answers yesterday. And that's just not the way my line of work, you know, functions. But what I, what I love about it, you know, when you talk about those bucks and the, and the, you know, the two different home ranges or I had, I had John McRoberts on here talking about uh, that Missouri buck that, that went like 180 miles that they had mm-hmm. collared, mm-hmm. you know, and I, it makes me, it's, this would probably sound super weird, but I sort of feel like the deer are just throwing up a pair of middle fingers at us. And they're like, you're never going to know what we're doing. Like, you're never going to know, no matter how many cell cameras you have, no matter how many different ways, like we get to tip the odds in our favor. We're, there's still so much we're just never going to know. Yeah, and that's the way it probably should be. Yeah. You know, I think about, you know, deer, I'm a, I'm a fanatical, I'd say I'm a, I'm a passionate turkey hunter. I'm a fanatical deer hunter. I mean, when it gets to be September, my, my mind goes to places that my wife will tell you. She's like, oh, you know, Christ, he, he's about to go into his crazy place. Um and I just love the deer hunt and I love, I love the challenge of finding a buck or an area that, that I know I'm got, I've got a good chance of encountering a mature deer. The, the chase to kill that animal is, is it just fuels me in the fall. It's why I get up in the morning. I think about it all the time and I have run across bucks as you have that I think are just, they're not killable. They're just, I tried every possible thing across a number of years to kill them. And I just didn't. Now, I've, a lot of times I've been successful and killed animals I, I was after, but I've also gotten my, my ass kicked too. And that's uh, honestly now in my life, 
is as much, if not more fun than harvesting one because they show me that I just know so little, yep. you know, even though I know everything I, you know, I think I know enough to, to get him. I did. I still didn't. In fact, I, I'll give you an example. This was at my camp in Louisiana. We had a deer on camera. This was years ago, a beautiful, beautiful 10 point, just a gorgeous hundred, you know, 160 inch animal. Uh, had him on camera in October and man, he was my, he was my guy. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to hunt that deer uh, and I'll kill him. It, it may take me all season, but I'll kill him. <laughs> Nobody ever saw that deer. Um, cameras everywhere, you know, hunters everywhere. There's about 10 of us that hunt the property routinely. That deer was shot 12 miles away. And I thought to myself, I wasted a lot of time hunting a ghost he wasn't even there and i don't know where he had been i don't know how he got to where he went and i don't even know when he did it maybe he left the day after we got pictures of him for all i know i was hunting an animal that didn't exist and it may you know at the time i i got you know i was frustrated i was like man i can't believe i wasted all this time and then i was like yeah you didn't waste a minute you know you you were out there doing what you love and and you, I saw a lot of things that year. I didn't obviously kill him, but I ended up killing a really nice buck that year that was about the size of that deer. Um, so I was, I had to step back and remind myself that I was fortunate to be in the game regardless of who I was chasing. Yeah. Well, and what do you do? I mean, even knowing exactly. that I that couldn't buck control could, it. Yeah. yeah. Like it, when you, when you make that decision, I mean, it, I, the, the buck that taught me that I used to be really cocky about this and be like, every deer is killable. Every deer is going to give you a chance. Mm-hmm. And I ran into a buck on a farm in Southeastern Minnesota. That I just had permission to hunt. It's just a dairy farm. They let a lot of people in there. It gets hunted really hard in shotgun season, pretty hard in bow season. And, but I, you know, hunted a long time and I found this buck that when I, when I first saw him, I was glassing with a buddy of mine and he came out with a bachelor group. And he was like a 160, which is a big, big deer. Uh-huh. And sure. he had a really unique look to him. He looked like a mule deer with these high and tight kind of, you know. And I I followed that deer for several seasons and hung multiple cameras, multiple stand sets. Sure. And that deer, w- what was so frustrating about him was he was very predictable as far as like how he'd come into this Valley to bed and how he'd leave it. Like I could get pictures of him all the time, but it would always be an hour after dark and an hour Uh or two before first light. And I never saw him no matter how much I crept in there. I'd never get him on certain cameras. And it was just like, this deer knows what he's doing so well that he's just got me beat. Like, I don't, I got, I got nothing left. And I think, I, I don't know this for sure. I'm, I'm about 90% sure he got hit by a car after I had chased him for like three years. Cause he was crossing this County road quite a bit. And I heard the, one of the neighboring landowners was in tears when he found a buck on the side of the road. And I think it was probably him, but oh, wow. you know, and you know, that that's sort of being facetious, but maybe not. Cause that's what, that's what the story I was given. But anyway, they, they do teach you that. Like you do, when you spend enough time out there, you're like, yeah. Man, even humble pie. Yeah, you think you're pretty hot shit, and then you start dealing with one. I mean, I just as an example, I had a doe one time on a property that I had permission to hunt here in the Twin Cities, and she was just real dominant, real aggressive, and big old doe. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna kill that because every time 
if I make a mistake with her, she busts me and she lets everybody know. And I hunted that doe super hard and she beat me every time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I have a parsley pieball doe on a property here in Georgia that is now five. And I saw her when she was a year and a half. And I saw her when she was two and a half. And since then, I've tried to kill this doe for two seasons now. I have thousands of pictures of her. I've not laid eyes on her except coming back to my truck to go retrieve another animal. She was standing about 80 yards from my truck one afternoon. That doe has, the pictures of her are every single night. She has not moved at all from where I saw her when she was a year and a half old and she's now five and I've never laid eyes on her. And I've intentionally been trying to kill this deer because I want to tan her hide. She's, she's beautiful. And that just goes to show you, she's living right under my nose and she, but she knows what I'm doing. She knows when I get in there, she knows when I show up, I, she's got some strategy that I don't understand that allows her to figure out when she's being hunted and she, she goes completely nocturnal. Whereas before the season, I get pictures of her in the daylight all the time. And I never get daylight pictures of her after the season starts ever. I had, I had a deer in Louisiana. I called him slick that this deer, I hunted him 12 different times. I hunted this animal and I had pictures of him twice of the 12 hunts. The two pictures I got of him were between hunts when I did not go to hunt him. And both of those times they were like four o'clock in the afternoon. He was on, he was walking by the camera. That deer knew exactly what I was doing. And I ended up killing him on the 13th hunt. And the only reason I did is I was, I decided I was going to go in midday and I had been leaving around 10 ish, 10 30 ish and coming back if the wind was right uh, for an afternoon, you know, two o'clock or whatever, uh, because we, we usually have a lot going on at my camp during the middle of the day. Well, I was by myself, so there was nothing going on. I lay down in the bed to take a, you know, try to nap for a little while. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't. It was like 12, 15. I was like, that pastor's there. He's there. So I got up, I put my clothes on and I, I went out to where I was. I thought about parking and I was like, you know what? This deer is bedding right here i'm gonna have to walk farther so i I took all my clothes off down to literally long underwear put all my stuff in my backpack and started walking and no kidding when i got to the base of the stand he crossed the right away in front of me climbed up in the stand put my clothes on really quick got situated and 20 minutes later i killed him and the only reason i killed him is he was chasing a doe and I'm convinced that he was he had been betting to where I could not get to that stand or another stand that's nearby on either wind. I could not get there without him knowing that I was there. He was betting in a tiny little sliver of, of cover, and he had a strategy. And that strategy was there's no way to get in here without me knowing that there's danger. And that day, he was not there. He was off chasing that doe. And he was a little farther north than he had been the previous 12 hunts. And I'm convinced that's the only reason I killed him. It's just because he made a mistake. He had my number. If he had not, if he had been bedded there where he had been, I would never have killed that deer because there's no way you, you couldn't get to him. Yep. I, th- I think we, 
I think one of the biggest things we underestimate about deer and their abilities is how, how even as good as we think we are, how many clues we give them that we're there and we were there and how quickly they get in tune to that. You know, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but I think we just really underestimate how good they are at just knowing us so well in our patterns and just going and, and reacting to them in a way that we really have a hard time beating. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we do so many things to tip our hand, you know, and I do it all the time and I don't try to, I try to avoid everything. You know, I, I'm fanatical about scent. Uh, <laughs> my, my kids have, um, will tell you, you know, when you walk behind me, I'm like, you know, put your foot right where my foot hit. You know, I, I try to do everything to be as quiet as I can. I don't talk in a stand. I turn my phone off. I just sit there motionless. I, um, I literally will sit in a stand and like a statue. I just sit there and I do everything yet. I had to get to the stand. Well, I just tipped off somebody, whether they blew at you or you saw them or heard them or not, you tipped off somebody. Uh, you know, I had to drive to the, you know, I had to drive to where I was, I was going to hunt. Well, at gravel roads, click and click and click and click, you know, there's gravel clicking. There's all these things that we do that are cues to them that tips our hand. Yep. And there, I think there's just some animal. I know there's just some animals that, uh, that you're not going to kill. We had a turkey like this years ago on a study that turkey spent his entire spring season within a hundred yards of the primary access trail used by hunters on that site. Hundreds of people walked by this bird and I have no idea how he, how he did it, but he did it. He just stayed there. He dealt with the pressure. Did he squat down and let us walk by? I, I have no idea, but all I know is that bird survived in immense pressure and he had a strategy to do it and deer are the same way. There are just some animals that they have a strategy like that piebald doe. I will very likely never kill her, and that's okay. Um, but I'm I'm going to try some different tricks ne- next year and see. But it, she'll probably win. Yeah, well, what's what's really cool about that and the, and the and the turkey too that you're talking about is we we tend to think okay, you know, I hunt tons of public land, right? Like I go I wait till hunt public land in a bunch of different states every year, and you know the goal is to kind of treat it like an elk hunt, right? Like get to the spot, however far you got to go, how much work you got to do to get to the spot. People don't go. That's where the deer will be. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it works. And sometimes you find those concentrations of deer sign right by the parking lot. And you start hunting there and you realize like there's two survival strategies, kind of like you, I bass fish a lot and you notice some bass, especially bigger bass tend to seem like they're ambushers, right? They get in the shadow Mm -hmm. of that stump. They're just waiting for food to come. But then you see these little wolf packs of the 14, 15 inchers. They're out hunting, you know, like they're, they're not just, you know what I mean? Like, and it's two different strategies. And then you look at the whitetails and you go, okay, some of them are finding those places where people are just ignoring them because they got to, you know, climb up to get them across a river or something. The other ones are just like, you know what? You guys are so predictable. I'm just going to use that to my advantage. I'm going to let you walk right by me. And I, cause I know how you're going to come in. I know when you're going to come in. I know where you're going to leave. And they just use that to their advantage till you throw them for a loop. Or like you said on that one deer, you know, the, the doe gets the best of him for just a little bit and you get that edge. Yeah. Yeah. And research has shown that, you know, GPS work on bucks has shown that, you know, some of them have certain strategies 
for instance, during the rut, you know, certain, some bucks do a certain thing and others do something else. And, but then when you, when you look at these behaviors or these strategies, you also see that how one buck does it is not identical to how another buck does it. So they may have the same broader strategy of, well, maybe I'll move more. I'll course through my range. I'll try to find as many does as I can. But how they do that looks a little different by, you know, by individual. Just speaking to that, that, you know, variation across these guys and, and how they behave. And, um, you know, and again, research is showing this on all sorts of species now. You know, these behavioral strategies, elk, wolves, coyotes. I mean, they all have these strategies, but there's a lot of variation within those those strategies. Yep. Yeah. You kind of have to, I mean, so we, we, we filmed a project last year called one week in November. And one of the places I hunted is a farm in Southwestern Minnesota. It was my first, or sorry, Southwestern Wisconsin. It was my first year hunting this place. And, you know, I scouted it quite a bit and it's bluffy stuff. So there's really nice pinch points and funnels and it's, you know, pretty this stuff I grew up hunting. So I was like, you know, I got this. And after hunting there, and seeing how some of those bucks cruise and, and how they use the the highway and some of these places where I was like, you know, this is going to be almost a non-factor. It just ma- it makes you realize when you do that stuff, you're like, man, they, even though like there is that individual variability, like you said, with all these deer and all these animals, they just have these tendencies that a lot of times we don't, we're either not aware of, or we just kind of like downplay it because we want to sit somewhere. Like we want to sit where we can see, or we, you know, like we don't want to be on that hillside right over the, the county road. And those deer, they're playing that game where they, they know us so well and they know where they're visible from the mm-hmm. roads. They know where they feed in those fields or, you know, the does are responding to that and the bucks are responding to that. And they're, they're operating on a level that's so freaking cool that way. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes hunting them fun. That's yeah. one of the reasons it's, you know, we're fan- fanatics about doing it is the uncertainty. You know, if it, if I, I kind of see this and I've talked with other people that I hunt with about this, you know, at, at some level, we're supposed to lose most of these battles. You know, I mean, we, we have so many tools now available to us to help us be more efficient hunters and more effective. But at the end of the day, we're not supposed to win more often than we lose. And, and, and so losing and failing is that's part of hunting. In fact, I believe that's one of the most important aspects of hunting is failure is failing at, at the hunt and learning from the experiences that you have. I've said this on other podcasts. People have asked me, you know, what, what's an important take home is like fail. Failing is an, is a good thing. Failing, getting your ass kicked over and over and over can be impactful if you let it be, if you let it drive you, um, to think more, to be more reflective, to be more introspective about what you're doing, how you're doing it. Failure becomes the seed of, of passion, I think. And I think that was the case with me. I lost, like I said, I grew up, I, I didn't have a lot of animals to hunt that, you know, but I kept going, I kept going, I kept going. Finally, you know, I'd started being more successful and then I started creating opportunities for myself because I was a better hunter. I was, I was a student of the animal, not just killing the animal, but learning about the animal and their ecology and their behavior. And that made me a better hunter. And then as I became a better hunter, 
success was not so fleeting that I was concerned about it anymore. I knew I was going to be successful at some point. Enjoy the experience now. Get out there and learn as much as you can and just relax and, and let things come to you. And I've told some quite a few younger hunters that I've interacted with in my life that that's that's my hunting philosophy in a nutshell is don't push it. Just let things happen as they're going to happen. Be smart. You know, like we're talking about deer. The wind's wrong, don't hunt him. Don't go there. If if you don't feel like you're comfortable accessing a place, don't go in there. Figure out a better way to do it. Um, understand that your first hunt is often your best shot. So if you're after a particular animal, sometimes you need that first hunt to be the the odds need to be tipped in your favor that first time after him. So sometimes that takes being patient and not going to a you know to hunt a certain animal. That's what I've done in my in my career uh, is just try to slow down sometimes. Try to try to let the the process work out and be patient. And if you have time to hunt, and I'm lucky enough, I have you know I I will often have a few days in a row or a week in a row at, at a particular spot that I can hunt. I can I can afford to be patient when I'm not. That's when I usually screw up. When I, when I'm not, when I'm trying to force the issue, that's when I usually make a mistake. And then I step back and go, you know, Mike, damn it, you knew better than that. You did it anyway, you know. So try to well, try to slow down. Sometimes. If, if you don't have that happen to you about three thousand times in your career, you'll never be a good deer hunter. I know, I know. I, or I did turkey this, hunter. Yeah, I did it this this last year too, and um, this past deer season was quite a challenge for me um in a lot of ways but but i screwed up one hunt and and i just thought to myself i was like what are you doing like what are you doing why did you even go to this stand like you shouldn't even be sitting here what were you thinking to do this and i even had a friend of mine text me and say where are you at and i i told him the stand that i was at and he goes the hell are you doing and i was like yeah i just realized that you know he's like man that's, you're smarter than that it's just I had it in my head. I was going to force the issue and, and I had a terrible hunt and I probably ended up educating the deer I was after. And as an aside, he wasn't, he was not killed last season by anyone, maybe because of me. Well, that that's what happens, man. Uh, so, so, so many words of wisdom there, Michael, let's, let's wrap this sucker up. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and I, I, I hope you had a nice little break from talking turkeys and talking deer today. Uh, but it was a pleasure, man. Yeah, no, it was, I was glad to join you. It's, it's, uh, it's good to talk about deer during the middle of spring turkey season. Uh, <laughs> I've certainly been talking about turkeys a lot. The oh, past I'm sure. Month or so. I'm sure. Well, thank you. Not a problem. Not a problem. That's it for this show, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more Whitetail Talk. This has been Where to Hunt, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, I can't thank you enough for your support, for listening, and for checking out our other Whitetail content, which is available at themeateater.com slash wired, where you can see a bunch of articles by Mark, myself, and a bunch of uh, Whitetail addicts. Or on our YouTube channel, the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel, where we post weekly how-to videos. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop. 
that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.